Hola, mi gente. My name is Jessica Yanez, and I want you to join me for some wine and chisme. The Wine and Chisme podcast was created to amplify voices across communities of color, all while drinking a glass of wine. From wine talk, interviews, and recaps of all things pop culture, join me every Wednesday for the chisme. Please make sure to check out the Wine and Chisme podcast and other amazing podcasts as part of the Latina Podcasters Network. Hola, hola, mi gente. I'm Jessica Yanez, and this is the Wine and Chisme podcast, a podcast created to amplify voices and share the stories of people from BIPOC communities doing remarkable things, all while sipping on a glass of wine. So welcome to your new Wednesday. The Wine and Chisme Wednesday. I'm super excited because I have Jasmine Starr with me. Welcome to the Wine and Juice My Podcast, Jasmine. Okay, you know I've been waiting for this. You know I've been waiting 99 episodes for this one. Have you really? Well, okay. I always challenge people. And when people rise to the challenge, I'm just like, I bow to you. I bow to you, queen. Like you did the thing and it's not in anyone's timeline, but your own. So when Christina let me know that you guys have been in contact and she's scheduling for a podcast, I was like, I know her. I committed to it and I'm going to say yes. And I'm true to my word because I really oh am freaking blown away by you. Oh God. Well, we'll get into like how that happened and okay. everything because I'm okay. super excited about how it happened. And I'm honestly blown away that this is episode 100. Can you believe that? I mean, no. I it's can't very like surreal. Good for you. But hold on. What are you drinking? What wine are, what wine are you drinking? <laughs> well, you know, we got to get into the wine. <laughs> so I'm actually drinking one of my favorite wines from a Latino-owned winery um, called Seis Soles. It's a soltiera is what the wine is called. And it's a red blend. And it's 70% Cabernet Sauvignon, 20% Petite Syrah, 5% Merlot, and 5% Petite Verdot. So tell me, where is the vineyard? In Lodi. Really? Yes. Okay, so I'm a big fan of California Reds, and my daughter's middle name is Sol. So come on. It's like this wine is basically, come on. I know. What a perfect wine for me to choose for this episode. I I know. So the winery owner, Chris Rivera, has become a friend of mine, and he works at a, a different winery by day. And then he, this is his, he actually launched oh. this during the pandemic. He launched his whole brand. Good for him. And he is just such a sweet soul. And man, his wines are so freaking good. And you don't think like, oh, we're going to get amazing wines from Lodi. But hey, dude, this is like legit one of my sleep, favorite wines. Nobody sleep on Lodi. You know, nobody people, sleep people on Lodi. sleeping on Napa before Napa was Napa. So here exactly. we go. Exactly. Listen, I'm just about California. So here we go. Tell me yes. how it is. Tell me the when I, because at the point of this recording, like it's, it's too midday for me to drink because I'm like a hustling <laughs> mama. And I was like, girl, I got to keep my head straight. But trust me, I'm going to look up this wine. And then okay. We well, I'll be, there's our cheers. You know, I got my sound effects. You, if you can't be in person, you got to do the sound effects. Like, yeah, this is your girl after my own heart because it's like you get like the ghetto sound effects by you <laughs> clinking your glass with yeah. your finger instead of having a sound effect. You know, that's how we roll. That's why I know this conversation is going to be good. <laughs> this is seriously one of my favorite wines. It has like layers of vanilla 
and cranberry and plum and it's just so like perfectly complex but not too much it's like not too dry so you still taste the fruit I feel like and, you're describing me but like oh my complex gosh. and not entirely dry oh okay. <laughs> <laughs> I love it so let's I'm so excited to share like how we met but before I do let me read your bio because if people I don't if people don't know you they're gonna know you now because I don't oh, know yeah, how people you, don't are you gonna read my bio off a piece of paper I have it here, Wait, but I why give why flavor just, to it. Why don't you just like make one up? Like make what? How about you make up a bio for how we know each other? Because okay, can I can totally do that because I, mean, I was, was going to okay, plan on doing okay, that anyways. Hey, okay, yeah, let's let's play here for a sec. So prior to actually meeting you, I was a part of your social cure. Actually, a friend of mine had referred me to you, asking if I knew who Jasmine Starr was, and I didn't know who you were at like four years ago, I guess, mm-hmm. three four years ago. So I started following you and I really like loved your energy. And I was like, all right, this girl, I love her. Like I could be friends with her, but not knowing that I would like, this would eventually happen. Then I joined social curator and we'll talk about that later. But then in the, in March of 2020, the very last like big thing that was happening. Live event. Yeah. I mean, just like industry wide, it was the last live conference. You were one of the keynote speakers for social media marketing world. And I was volunteering. So Mm -hmm. I wanted to hurry up and get to your keynote and I missed it. But when I was walking out, you were standing there with your husband, JD, and people were talking and there was barely anybody around you because everybody was in the big auditorium for the keynote. And I was like, Oh, I'm going to go take my chance now. Let me go say hi. Let me introduce. And I was only at that point, five episodes, four or five episodes into the podcast. You like just started. Just started. Mm-hmm. So I introduced myself. I said I was part of Social Curator Network and that I just launched a podcast. And when you asked me the podcast, I told you the name and I told you it's the Wine and Cheese Made Podcast. And you're, I remember your first response was, that's brilliant. How was that not taken? And I was like, I don't know, but it is now. (laughs) (laughs) It was meant for me. (laughs) It was, it was. And so from my side of the story, I had finished, I had finished a keynote and we were on our way out and I didn't have a pulse on how I had done with the keynote because sometimes energetically when you're standing on a stage and you're conveying a message or saying a thing, I often think that I'm just like a vessel and the things that I need to share are for the people that are in the room. And so sometimes I get up stage and I was like, man, like it was hitting, like I got it. Like energetically, I felt like the, the, the audience, I, people were responding. So I knew it was landing. And then in this room, room. It was a massive room. It was like, I think like something like 3000 people were in the keynote room, but all of the lights, they didn't have what they call house lights, which are like pin lights from the ceiling. So it was just a sea of black. So you're on stage and there's just like this one big light and I couldn't see anybody in the audience and I couldn't hear anybody. And so I'm trying to keep it funny or light and I don't hear anything. And I'm like, Oh my God, like the audience is dead or there's crickets or the rapture had just happened and nobody's (laughs) in their chairs. And I'm like this. So I get up the stage and I'm kind of feeling like a little bit like is this actually working? Did it work? Like, what was my intention? Who was I supposed to speak to? These are all the questions that I ask after because I'm always trying to be in a place of service. But I'm like, who was I supposed to serve? And so on our way out, 
my dogs are barking because my shoes are way too tight. I bought shoes last minute because I was like, <laughs> oh, I don't have anything to wear. Buy these shoes that are way too tight. Wear them out. I just want to get out to the car. I'm on my way out. I am talking just to like one or two people. And then I see somebody waiting for me out of the, my periphery. I turn to you and you're like, I have a podcast. Can you be on it? Now, I have to tell you, this is not the first time that some stranger has come up to me within 30 seconds of meeting me. He's like, can you be in my podcast? And I'm just kind of like, cool. And then what did I tell you? We talked about the name. You love the name. And then you said, I will be your 100th guest. I will be your guest for your 100th episode. I did say that. And here we are, 100th episode. And I'm so stinking proud of you. I just was blown away. I am too. I was on a, a call earlier and I was just saying how I can't believe that I'm going to be recording episode 100, that it feels very, very surreal because I launched my, I dropped my first three episodes, February 17th of 2020. And here we are less than two years later and I'm a hundred episodes in. It's been a long time, but then not really. Like, I don't even know how to process the whole thing. Like, oh my gosh. Well, well really? here's the thing. You, okay. So number one, like I hear this and I'm just like, yeah, I get it and I understand it. But remember within these two years of getting to a hundred episodes, the world went through a global pandemic that totally and completely distorted and bent what time was. And so you're like, how do I contextualize a hundred episodes in two years? And I was like, girl, you ain't going to be able to contextualize what a hundred episodes in two years feels like for another two years. So right now, like, hang on for the ride. Like, let's just have <laughs> some fun. Like, give me another one of your ghetto fabulous sound effects. Cause we got to cheers. We got to All right. Let's oh, cheers oh, to oh, that. Oh, oh. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. I love it. On the actual like intro, we have legit sound effects of a bottle popping in the intro. So <laughs> See, we don't need to get fancy here. Though. We just need to get it done. You know, that's like, that's what business is. It's taking what you have and making it work. Oh my gosh, totally. I have two business and life mottos that I kind of go by. And one is the answer is always no if you don't ask the question. So if I wouldn't have come up to you and asked you that, nothing would have changed. Like everything would have remained the same. Nothing would have changed. But I asked the question. And sometimes asking the question can change everything. Absolutely. I love it. What's the second one? Um, the, now I just went blank. The second <laughs> one. <laughs> I was like talking about this earlier and I was like, yes, yes, yes. Well, how about we just go back with like, there's one life model. That's all, the one you never forget. And then when number two comes back to you, be like, I remembered it. Yeah. <laughs> just pretend I said one guys. And they'll be like, oh, wait. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you remember the most important one. That's what matters. Yes. I know your daughter and you, well, you are a twin, but you're also your daughter of immigrants and you come from a Mexican and Puerto Rican household. Correct. And I'm always so curious in regards to how people, because I feel like it's different for everybody in regards to how people blend their cultures, even within the Latino culture, they're very different. So can you share a bit like about how you grew up and how your, those two cultures were blended in your household? Absolutely. So proudly Mexican. You know, it's just like you have like beans, like most people, most Latinos or excuse me, most Mexicans, you have your pinto beans and like red rice or Spanish rice. Right. Well, how Latino is this audience? Because I need to like, do I make references without the explanation or do I make? Oh, you with the like explanation? we're very like, I mean, yeah, we're pretty Latino. <laughs> OK, 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 OK. So I was like, so we a little bit of everybody, thing. but very okay. heavily Latino. <laughs> I was like, so there's the Spanish rice. <laughs> no, it's like so that like culturally. Food-wise, things are very blended. 
but I was born and raised in LA, which is strongly Mexican. Whereas most of my mom's family is from Puerto Rico. And if they're not in Puerto Rico, they're in New York. So, you know, you have like a very strong undercurrent of Boricua and like arroz con habichuela and chuletas, East Coast. But it was definitely indexed for Mexican food, Mexican music. My father and mother's first language is Spanish. And we lived in LA in a small little town called La Puente. And so even the name of our town was Spanish. I know so, La Puente. Okay, okay, okay. Bassett High School, Bishop Amat. Okay. <laughs> and so, um, you know, but my dad's church is in East LA. And so my, my mom homeschooled all of her children. My dad is a, a, a pastor and we were there a lot. So to me, East Los Angeles is home. And wherever we moved within that, East Los Angeles was always still our anchor. So culturally, I actually didn't realize that it was a culture. I just thought it was the norm. So it could, it should probably like give a little bit of insight that my world was as big as like a 12 mile radius from La Puente to East LA you know, a 15 mile radius, whatever that case may be. And like, that's where we squarely stayed. And so I just thought that like most people loaded up their truck with lawnmowers and rakes and two <laughs> people in the back. And there was horns on like the front of the hood. I just thought like, that's just how you do. And it wasn't actually until I went to college and it was in college that I realized, oh, that's culture. It was my norm. I didn't live in an area where my parents were staunchly like, this is Latino culture. This is what we do because it, they had to like ingrain it because we were in a largely different, you know, racial demographic. It was most of the people around us were brown. So it was my yeah. norm. And when I got to college, I was like, oh, what is this thing called? Look, lacrosse? Like what? What what was this weird sport? I don't think I was an adult, like a legit adult <laughs> before I knew what lacrosse was. I was so like, like, there's a sport called rowing. Wait, what? Like, like, like there was these things in context and traveling and vacations and cars and lifestyles and brands and purses and shoes that I had no idea about. So for me, this distinction, when I actually realized what culture was, was when I was a legal adult, like late teens, early 20s. So I want to go back to something you said, talking about your dad being a preacher. And you're so you're a PK. Yes. If you don't know it. PK is this preacher's kid. Yes. <laughs> How did that affect your view? Because I know some PKs, as soon as they got a taste of individuality or mm -hmm. like out of the house, they were, cra they were either the craziest or most reserved people. How do you think that affected you specifically in regards to your view of the world and how you, how you, when you got some freedom, how you approach that? Oh, you know, I'm a nerd. Like there's an 87 year old woman living inside me. And she's been there <laughs> since I was like 14. So I just, you know, I didn't party in high school and I didn't party in college. And I know that seems very weird to a lot of people. And I just know it's my makeup. I just came from a very hardworking family. And so it was odd to me that I was working on campus as part of my tuition, like a tuition payback program. And I was working as a waitress five or six nights a week. And so, you know, I was serving people from college and I worked at a restaurant right across the street from our school. So I was serving very wealthy kids expensive meals before they went and partied at frat houses. Mm -hmm. And so to me, it just was like, kind of like, I don't get the purpose. Like my option, and please, this is not like a, a sad song. This is, oh, wait, I can stand around with a red cup around people who get progressively drunk and make no sense <laughs> whatsoever and jump off second story buildings onto an emaciated mattress, or I could make money. 
uh, I'm making money and legit. That's just been how I've been hardwired. So when I got freedom, I still made the decision to just move forward. And I think that my parents really did empower us to make us believe that like in this country, you can do whatever you want. Like my parents still believe that. Uh, I, I think it goes beyond the American dream. It's they firmly believe that it is possible. But then when you intertwine that with like the spiritual component and that like God has a plan for your life and anything is possible in this country, it's just like, how dare you not take these opportunities and do something with them? Yeah. No, I mean, I've heard that from a lot. I'm second generation. So my parents were already, even though like my dad is from a border town in Texas, my mom grew up in Southern California. So I feel like they were already, there were things that they already did in regards to assimilation that they kind of instilled in me and my sisters versus being first generation. But they were raised in very, very strict households. So I feel like when they had us, they didn't want us to feel that those constraints as much. So we did have more freedom. We did do more things. But I definitely still stood around sometimes with the red cup in my head. <laughs> hey, and, there's, and here's the thing. There's actually zero judgment. I know that I am the weird one. I know that I'm the anomaly. And I'm fine with it. I think that it's cool that people did that. I just, I'm, I'm beguiled by it. Like, I'm yeah. just like, so what was that fascination? Like, you know, I'm like, it's just crazy to me. But at the same time, I know that when we talk about strictness or freedom or the case may be like, I came from a super strict conservative household. Like we didn't watch the Smurfs. Like that I, was my favorite cartoon growing up. Okay. It's just, but we didn't, because, and then like Scooby-Doo because Scooby-Doo had ghosts and we don't believe in ghosts. Like it was just, like, we, like, I am talking about that conservative family. Wow. But like my parents, I don't know. They like, they just, they just smothered us with love that, you know, even when we realized you guys are being weird, like we still liked them, <laughs> you know, like, so there's an offset there. I mean, all parents are weird. I call my mom a cartoon character come to life. So (laughs) (laughs) she truly, truly is. So being a twin, did you guys have very similar or very different personalities? And what was that dynamic in regards to like growing up, going to school? Were there people that would like confuse you guys a lot? But really, like, was there an outgoing twin and like really someone who was just like, eh, like, leave me alone, please? Okay, so our characters are very, very, very similar. Very similar. Um, We were raised by the same parents at the same time and our parents made virtually the same decisions for us. So character-wise, they shaped us. Personality-wise, really different. But what I think that when people initially meet us, they're focused on our character and they're like, they're so similar. But then when people really get to know us, they see how distinct our personality are and they're like, you guys are truly night and day, yin and yang. Um, My sister is an extrovert. Well, as high as my sister as an extrovert is as high as I am for an introvert. I am the kind of person who always, even from childhood, would stand against a wall and then watch the room and then determine what am I going to do and who am I going to engage with? And my sister will step into any room. And I am telling you from the chef in the kitchen to the person cleaning the bathrooms to the main host event to the person who's running an auction, my sister will have everybody. She's just, she's vivacious. She attracts people. She's a storyteller. She's loud. She's everybody's best friend. And it was nice to have somebody like that your whole life because even like my sister and I traveled Europe 
And this was like, for our family, this was like massive. We're in college and we had this like study abroad program for like a month. And we were out there and my sister, because she just is fearless. Like she would talk to any, she doesn't know the language. Okay. She doesn't know the language and she's just making things up and people just like her (laughs) and they just were like, okay, okay. You know? And so having somebody like that is like a really great shield or passport. Cause I would be like, okay, go stand in line and ask them what time the train comes. She's like, you, we don't speak the language. I'm like, yeah, but you're willing to do it. So then I would just there and watch her be like, mm-hmm, listen to her. <laughs> so we're, we're very, very, very different. She's highly emotional. She, and she's a feeler. Like if something doesn't feel right to her and I am completely opposite. I am reserved, highly logical, like just connect the dot. Like, let me connect the dots. And I'm like full force ahead. And I don't need to feel good about a situation. I just need to freaking do it. And oh. so that I know, I know. I'm more are. like your sister for sure. Like Most I was that, are. I was that person. Yeah. I could get a story from a brick wall. Right. <laughs> like, But also I remember being at Disneyland one time and my parents, they thought they saw a Padres player, a San Diego Padres player. And they're like, Jay, go ask, go ask if it's still. And so go. And I'm, and I'm like, no, why don't you guys go ask? No, 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 go ask. Because they know I would do it, right? <laughs> I was the one who'd make a fool of myself and just be like, you know, I was a cheerleader in Pop Warner and we would have bake sales. And me in my, by the end of mine and my mom's shift, it would always be done because I remember one time we were outside some store and I would be like, good food, cheap prices. And mom was like, no, 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 don't say cheap because cheap makes it seem like it's not as good as it is. These are homemade things. People brought their stuff. Like, so I'd be like, good food, good price. Like, I'm like a dork and just screaming this at the outside. You know, I wasn't just like a Girl Scout. Do you want to buy cookies? No, I was practically doing cheers to get people no, that's to. funny. So that I totally relate to your sister. A hundred percent. That would be like, I'm talking. I was like, you're my sister. A hundred percent. Whereas <laughs> I wouldn't even say, would you want to buy Girl Scout cookies? I would take out a pen and put on a piece of paper. Would you like to buy some Girl Scout cookies? And then just wait <laughs> and watch people. <laughs> Look, or you, you look sad. So people are like, oh, she looks so sad. We should buy her cookies. <laughs> <laughs> you went to what I call the holy grail for Mexican parents, their kids to go to UCLA. So you went to UCLA. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I always say like, that's the holy grail. I even asked my mom, would you want? She's like, it's too expensive. I'm glad you didn't apply there. <laughs> <laughs> Did you know, because you kind of had this really interesting path in regards to going to UCLA, and then you end up going to law school, and then you drop out of law school, go into photography, like this is just a very like crazy path that you have taken. I know that you dropped out of law school when your mom had, she had a re uh, reoccurrence of brain cancer. Mm-hmm. So what initially drew you to go to law school? And then what was it about your mom having this reoccurrence of brain cancer that made you completely pivot in the path that you thought you were going? I will say that to my parents, um, college was important and it was great, but it was never demanded. And it wasn't even really spoken about like in my house. It was never like my parents were like, it's the American dream and you have to go. It was my sister and I were self-starters and I did well academically. I wasn't, I wasn't at all smart. I just was very, very, very determined. And that earned both of us academic scholarships to college and earned an academic scholarship 
to law school. And so while we jokingly say it's like the Holy Grail, like in Southern California, it definitely like Holy Grail school. My parents are so proud, but it they never took me aside and said, oh, we're so proud of you. It was kind of just like, this is great if you're happy. And I have to give my parents a lot of credit because they never pushed us in any direction. So it would seem apropos that when my mom had a relapse of brain cancer, it was like, they're just everything for me. And she specifically was such a pivotal person, like this force in my life. And I got to law school and, you know, I, looking back, I realized what had happened. Looking back, I did well academically. I got into working after college and I didn't know what to do. And I just felt like, what's the quickest path to get myself and my family out of the hood? Like, what does that look like? Like when you're in LA and you're squarely in East LA, like the question then becomes, how do I move the quadrant? How do I get from East LA to West LA where cars and people are looking more European? Okay. So it's not lost on me that the school that's the Holy Grail is in West Los Angeles and my family is squarely on the opposite side. So I am just like, I'm going to go to school and I'm going to get a corner office and I'm going to make lots of money and I'm going to drive a nice car. I'm going to own a nice house. I'm going to be out here. And I'm going to take care of my family. And that's what I'm going to do. And to me, what was that path? I hated math and science. So I wasn't going to be a doctor. And I was like a lawyer. And my family jokes that I like that I liked to argue. And I'm like, no, I just like to prove my point. But <laughs> I was like, okay, law school. And I just don't think anybody should ever make a decision like, oh, this is the path to money or this is the, like, you should really want to do the thing that you want to do. But I was young, I was naive and I was very hopeful. I was wildly miserable in law school. So when my mom had a relapse, I was kind of like, it had been an eight and a half year battle and doctors had said that her time had come. So at this point, I'm like, I hate being here. I'm so unhappy. And the person, one of the people I love the most is going to pass. So it was very easy for me to say, I am taking a medical leave. And that was just the whole decision. That was like the whole decision. And I think that in any good Latino family, so my scholarship included on-campus housing. So I was in West LA right by the Bel Air gate and I was living off veteran, but these were brand new uh, graduate student housing. If I was no longer a student, I was no longer eligible for housing. So I had to move out immediately. And what does any good Latina girl do when she ain't got a place to stay? Go back home. That's right, girl. And I, <laughs> I've I done it. To other I've people done it. And they're like, oh, you take out a loan for a studio. And I'm like, oh, no, no, no. No. You go home. You go home. So I went, so I went home and that was like, just like a coming to like my mom was 50 and I was 25. And I thought to myself, what if I have 25 years left of my life? Like, I don't want to die a lawyer. I don't want to be a lawyer. So it forced me to have a reconciliation of like, what is actually going to happen? And I can now say that my mom is here with us still, which was like a miracle. But at the time the doctor said, said, we're done. It's time to start making funeral arrangements. So there's a lot of emotions going very high. I was, I had met my boyfriend in high school and we had been dating this entire time. And he had wanting to get married after college. And I said, no, no, I want to get married after law school. Like, let me just get my trash together. And immediately when I moved back home, I was like, I just want my mom to see us get married. So we planned a wedding in like three months. And the doctor said, she won't talk. She won't walk. She won't travel. And there my mom was herself and 22 other people in Hawaii walk me down the aisle with my dad. So it was these moving experiences that I realized like life is really short. And we had hired somebody to document our wedding as a photographer. And I looked at what he did and I looked at the work that he had produced. And while some people would look at that and say like, wow, he documented a, a wedding in what I felt distinctly was he had documented a miracle. And I thought to myself, I want to do that. Like I want to be around people who have stories to tell and with a camera, but I had, I didn't own a camera. 
I didn't have money for a camera and I was in no way, shape or form like what somebody would look and be like, oh, there goes an artist. No, not at all. <laughs> and so, you know, we come back from our honeymoon and it's time for me to go back to UCLA and I get my scholarship and I'm like, I don't want to go like, please, I'm so miserable. And my husband says, well, what do you, if you could do one thing for the rest of your life, what would you want to do? And I said, I want to be a photographer. And he's kind of like, okay but you don't have a camera. And I was like, I know, <laughs> like, I know. It's kind of like the equivalent of be like, I want to run the hundred meter dash in the Olympics. It was like, it was met with like, oh, oh, oh okay, but uh, we got a few things to take care of in the middle. And so, but I love that he didn't say, you can't be a photographer, that he was just I like- know. I know. Like, cause I how know. many people would be like, what do you mean you want to be a photographer? You've never taken a picture in your life. I know. But he didn't say that. No, not at all. And, you know, I think that, it, that what people say is like, you often are attracted to a partner who resembles one or both of your parents. And my husband absolutely possesses those same qualities. Like going back to like that loop back of like, our parents believed that we live in one of the best countries and believe that God has a plan for your life. And I'm like, yeah. lo, bo and, lo and behold, my brand new husband believed the same thing. He's just well, Lord hopes that somebody has the patience with me that my dad has with my mom, because I'm for <laughs> sure my mother's daughter. <laughs> Listen, I am living proof that there are certain men who like and are attracted to a version of crazy that no one will understand. Like, I think people meet him and they meet me and they're like, how? Like, how? Like, how does this work? Like, how is he even about you? And I'm like, listen, you don't question miracles. Like, this man's about me. Just l let him live in the delusion. I'm here for it. Uh, so he's actually the one that bought me a camera, you know? And like the camera was like Best Buy version of a camera. And I was like, okay, like, let's try this. And he had said, and he's also very practical. So he said, let's try it for a year. Like, see how it goes for you. And then you can make a decision to go back to UCLA and get your law scholarship. And I was like, okay. And then that was my first foray in business. And this was me trying to figure out what it meant to get people to give you money to do something you really want to do. It was fascinating. It was gut-wrenching. It was exciting. It was agonizing. It was embarrassing. It was tragic. It was victorious. It was all those things in 12 months. And I was addicted. Like I Did got you have a butt. moment where somebody was like, was it, were you a natural with the camera? No, I was Did terrible. you have to practice or would, oh, I was, was terrible. your first job that somebody paid you? Somebody was like, really? Oh, no, 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 no. Nobody, I offered my services for free to people at my dad's church and they said, no, that's how bad I was. And I was like, y'all, <laughs> God don't love you. Y'all be rude. So it's like, when you ask, like, if I was naturally gifted, no. Like they would see me be like, oh shoot, like turn the other way. Like don't have her, like, I don't want to deal with like, her. Don't like, answer the door. Like you're Jehovah's Witness coming to the door. Like I'm like knocking on the doors. Like I'm here. No. Yeah, no, it was not that at all. It took a lot of practice, but then you get to a point to where like you run out of favors to ask friends and family. Like they're only want to, they only want you to take their picture like so many times. And so I was like, I got very, very, very familiar at shooting an orange tree in my backyard and I would bring out pairs of shoes and I would put them on the floor and I would just practice. Like if the window is to the right, how do I shoot it? If the window's to the left, if the window's behind, if I put those shoes in full light. So I had to practice with what was around. And that was legitimately my dog, shoes, drinks in a glass cup, drinks in a mug, like anything that I could take plenty of time and nobody would complain. And that's- What was your first like paying gig that some, and was that like super scary taking money for the first time? 
I will say yes, but not as much as what somebody might think because like, so I got my camera and my husband was with a, a startup telecommunication companies in, company in the educational uh, like area. And so I had a part-time job. I was actually a part-time job at my dad's church. So I was working there three days a week. I had just got a camera and it was a day that I didn't go into the office. And so I said, I want to go with you. And his part of his territory was in East LA. So we go to like very, we go to like Monterey Park, East LA. And so so he's pitching the school district there and I have my camera and I'm walking around the very first photos that I ever take of all time, which is like a full circle moment are a lot of murals in East Los Angeles and a liquor store. And, you know, when I look back at these photos, it's like, bless my heart. Like I get the people are taking better iPhone <laughs> photos now, but they were my first photos and I documented it and I was so proud and I was just excited. Now it took me a while. I got very involved in an online in online photography communities. And so I started meeting and networking and I would shoot for free. I was driving down to San Diego. And for people who don't like, I was living in LA at the time, driving down to San Diego. So it'd be like on a Saturday, like a three hour drive. And I would yeah. go and I would work for free for like eight or nine hours and then take a three hour drive back home. So I was doing this on the back of other photographers who were very generous and letting me go. And they had zero expectations. I wasn't very good. So they weren't like being like, Hey, give me your photos at the end of the night. They were just kind of like, ah, all right. And I would just drive wherever and I would shoot and I would shoot and I would shoot. I spent about a year shooting with other photographers, building up a portfolio so that when somebody finally did pay me a thousand dollars, it was like a 10 hour wedding. It was going to be long. And I said, okay, for it. Like I asked the first person who there, like, do you shoot weddings? I was like, of course I do. <laughs> She's like, how much do you charge? I was like, what's your budget? And she's just like a thousand dollars. I was like, funny. That's what I charge. And so that was like, that was it. And she was just like, I want all the photos. I want this. I want that. And I was like, you got it. Cause I was like, somebody's going to pay me a thousand dollars. Are you freaking crazy? This is amazing. And, um, you know, there was like highlights to the day. And then there were other moments that I completely and totally botched it. And then I came, I went home that night and I cried and I was like, I'm gonna have to give the money back. And I ruined the day. And JD, my ever supportive partner was just like, listen, don't give back the money yet. Like just give them a sneak peek. Like let them see a little bit from what they got. So I sent her like this slideshow and she like passed it to all the friends. And she had, I think like 13 or 16 bridesmaids. They started passing that slideshow around and emailing it to other people. And that was the start of referrals. And so clearly we didn't ruin her wedding. She was very happy, referred us a thousand times over. And that's the start. It just took that's, off from there. That's so important to know though, because I think people see you in the level that you're at now and they think, oh, she has it all together. Oh, she hasn't. Yeah, I'm sure she's had a couple of things to overcome, but she's probably always been super confident. She's probably always been so hearing stories like that, where you came home after your first paying gig crying because you're thinking you messed it up. Like, I think that's really important for people to hear. But here's the thing with intentionality or without intentionality. Yeah. People are always going to have an opinion where they could say, oh, it Absolutely. looks like this. And I'm just like, number one, your opinions don't pay my bills. Number two, you want to make 100% judgment of me when you know 0.001% of who I am. And then number three, I will never, nor have I ever backed down from the reality of what I was doing when I was doing it. In fact, I started a blog because I didn't have money for a website and I was documenting the journey. I was documenting my fear. I was documenting inadequacies. I like I was blogging that I didn't have money to buy lenses for the gigs I was being hired for. But when somebody paid me, I used that money to rent the lens and show up to the wedding like a baller and then have to return it the next day. I've never been a person who tried to posture as something I wasn't. And so just in case anybody right here right now is saying like, yeah, but that's not what she's going through. Just yesterday, I had a quote unquote first wedding moment where I had to sit in front of my tech team and say, 
Okay, so quick back backstory. Started Social Curator. It was a, it was a membership where business owners can come in and get marketing resources. And then in 2020, had the stark realization that we needed to become a tech company because people's businesses were iterating faster, and we had to serve a variety of businesses a heck of a lot better. And so on the back of this, we hired a CTO in March 2020, and he sat and he was watching what we did, try to understand, try to understand our needs, and understand the user. In October. 2020, we launched our own tech stack, which meant we were not using WordPress to build a multi-million dollar business. So praise hands. That's great. I'm like, this is everything I ever wanted. Be careful what you wish for. Because as a result of him coming in and taking over, he started hiring a team. Just in our tech department alone, it is himself and seven people. And what happens is I bit off more than I could chew. And I want this to serve as documentation that I had to sit in front of this team, my voice shaking like a billy goat. And I'm looking at them and I'm saying, I am a non-tech founder and I'm making decisions without the whole picture. I don't understand what it is you do. So if you see me making a mistake or a call, I am begging you to tell me that it is wrong and you guide me in that direction. So... I see that. And I was so, I felt open. I came home and I told my husband, it felt like a wire that had exposed ends. And I just felt like I was so, I was inches away from water. I was like, I felt like I was going to get electrocuted. I had so much nervous energy through my body and I wanted to show up and desperately be a leader with clear, distinct vision. But I knew that I would be freaking fake doing that. And so I would rather people work with somebody where they knew exactly who I was and trust that I don't know what I'm doing, but trust that I'm hungry and dedicated enough to figure it out. So anybody who would like to have a conversation or ask me a question about what it looks like to quote unquote, have it together. I'm here. I've always been here and I answer my own DMs. So thank you. You sure do. You yes. sure do answer your own DMs. Yes. I could tell, I know that for sure. Yes, we've DMs. Yeah. Yeah. No, but I think, I think that's, first of all, that shows signs of a, of a very clear leader, right? Because a leader, instead of a boss, will be open to feedback and want to learn instead of just feeling like a dictator, right? And like, right. no, this is what it is without having all the information or understanding the information. And I right. think that's why so many people are attracted to you and what you do because they see the authenticity. People can sniff out inauthenticity very, very quickly. Mm. And I think... That's always like, no matter what business you do, if people feel like you're inauthentic, they're going to leave really quick. I've seen people like every year they have a new circle and I'm like, is it the other people or is it you? Because mm. if, if I'm seeing a different circle every single year, that's right. I'm not looking at those other people. I'm looking right. at like, is that somebody I would want to associate? Probably not. And I think because you do come off of, you do know a lot of information, but you're also like, you guys, I don't know everything. This is my story. This is whatever. I think that's why so many people are attracted to you. At what point did your husband start working with you? And how is like, how is it working with your husband? Because I know a lot of people probably cannot do that. I mean, right. I'm no. single as a Pringle, so I don't have to worry about that. It's just me and my dog. But, <laughs> you know, we met when we were 16, 17 years old. So we were really young. And then uh, he got a soccer scholarship to play in the Bay Area. So we did two years long distance. And it was over those two years that forced us to text and call and write letters. And I think that it went from, oh, I, I like him. He's so cute to like, he's a friend, like he's a confidant. And you can't depend on that physical connection. You actually had to create a deep emotional bond and 
start communicating. Like there was just no way of be, like beating around the bush. Like we had like 25, 30 minutes to talk a day. So get it done and peel back the layers, like no head games. And that was so great because it forced us to have real conversations and develop a relationship. And I know that working with your partner, I would never recommend it. I don't think it's a one size fits all. It's a one size fits us. And I love him and he's the better part of the business. And we compliment each other because he loves to dream big and he loves to invent things that don't exist where I don't, I've never been the person who's like, let me think of something from scratch. My power play is I know how to make things better. And so it's kind of like that great, you know, that great conversation place where when we thought of the idea yeah. of social curator, like I wouldn't come up with this. And so he started off like at first social curator was this idea of giving a subscription box to business owners to take their own photos. And I was like, oh, the overhead, the product, how we're going to do all this other stuff. And so to iterate on that idea and have it become what it is, I think it's like a sign of how synergistically we work. It's such a great thing because I've used it to jump off a lot of stuff. I don't, I, you know, you, the way social curator works is you provide photos and captions and people, and then you provide what I love is you provide ideas for photos. So if people don't want to use the photos you provided. You're giving them ideas to continue to prompt them to think. So I've used a lot of the captions for prompts and sometimes they end up really long <laughs> depending on how I'm feeling or sometimes I, you know, but some, we just don't have time sometimes to think of all these things. So to have something that's already kind of there to be able to personalize to you is so lovely. <laughs> it's so nice to have something Thank like you. that. That means a lot. That means a lot. Thank you. I want to kind of shift a little bit because you, over the pandemic, you and JD adopted a baby girl, Luna. We Luna did. Sol. Luna now that we know Luna Sol. Yes. First of all, congratulations. I think that's Thank amazing. You. I think Thank I sent you, you congratulations on DM or something, but like I can get to tell you now, congratulations. She's so beautiful. She's so cute. How has becoming a parent affected the way that you have looked at your business and maybe the way you approach your business? I'm going to take a little bit of a spin on that question. I don't know if she has changed the way I look at my business or how I function in my business. I know that she has radically impacted the way that I view myself and the way that I act. And I know that that Im directly impacts the business. But oftentimes you always hear people say like, oh, you should uh, speak to yourself the way that you would if you were a child. And I think that you understand that implicitly, but it becomes very different if I was being negative or hard on myself. I, it I would be brokenhearted if I heard my daughter speak to herself the way that I spoke to myself, that inner dialogue and narrative. I never want her, oh, dang it, just talking about her. See, I'm like, I'm like it's a gangster chair. It's a gangster chair. If it doesn't fall, it's not. No, um, <laughs> no um, you know, I never want her to walk into a room and feel like she just doesn't belong or that she's not worthy. And I feel like for years, that's how I felt. Like I didn't belong or that I wasn't worthy to be in the room. And so now after having her, I was like, my God, my daughter better see me walk into a room that I, I belong at the table. I belong in the room. And it requires me to become a different person. And that person is now leading a different type of business. And so for that, I always feel like so indebted to her. I do. She's not even two years old. And I just feel just wildly indebted to her. Oh, thank you for sharing that. That's so <laughs> sweet. I love it. <laughs> I love it. You're bullying me. I'm, you're not the first person who's cried on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm not even drinking. Okay, but does it, okay. So if the tear doesn't fall, did we actually cry? That's the question. You know, it's you like, teared up. Back in. I did tear up. I did. You teared my voice up. Got all like, eh. 
<laughs> no, it's just her. It's like literally they could talk about a thousand things and then 30 seconds talk about that girl. And then I'm like, ah, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> well, so, that's because she's impacted your life yeah. in such an amazing way. And you love her so much. Of course, you're going to like yeah. get emotional talking about yes. her. I get yes. that. One thing that you were saying, going back to like, not everything you do is like, not everybody pays your bills and stuff like that. I forgot the exact word you say. I was actually listening to your podcast in regards to that. Oh and yeah. I, that, yeah. Your opinion, like their opinions don't pay your yeah, bills. Their opinions don't pay your bills because I fully believe that we constantly want to be. And I actually wrote a post on this on Instagram the other day about like, I grew up being a people pleaser. I wanted everybody to like me. I wanted it so bad. Like, uh, and then I had two very pivotal moments in my life that completely as a child, right into through adolescence, probably into my early to mid twenties that completely affected me with two like legit grown women, one a teacher and one a former boss. And this happened when I was 13 years old and 15 years old, two women telling me I had a high school teacher telling me I was a bimbo. She didn't want bimbos like me on her cheer squad. And then I had a boss at my first job at Target no matter what I did, like was not good enough. She berated me all the time. And so I let that kind of follow me for a long time. And then at some point, and I think it's as you get older, you shed, you start shedding all that stuff. And now I'm like, you know what? I don't care what their thoughts are anymore. They don't pay my bills. That's they right. don't do this. They don't do That's that. Right. But even when you get quote unquote haters, because I know on social media, the more followers you get, the more hate that comes along with that. And I got my first quote unquote hate comment a few months ago. And I was so excited because my friend was like, you arrived. Yes, <laughs> you did. Somebody said my forehead was big. They're like, why are you doing that? You have a big forehead. I thought it was hilarious. I thought it was so funny. And I was like, I made it. I made it. Well, I mean, yeah. And okay. Not only that is that as, like, as we have the ability to record the audio for this, we're also on video. And I'm like, you ain't got a five head. Like you're, you don't have like a four and a half head. Like you have an average It's size. three, look. I know. I'm like, my forehead's bigger than you. If somebody had said, oh, you got a big forehead. I was like, okay, fine. Don't look. You know, the internet's free. You you came to me. I didn't come to you. Yeah. So there you go. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, listen, I just say that to say like, that was an opinion and it doesn't really matter to me. But how can, like how you're, you know, you continue to grow and I'm sure you hear all kinds of crazy things on social media or whatever. How do you let that not affect you? How do you like not let that negativity creep in? And when it does, because I'm sure there's times where that negativity does creep in. What do you do to just like get rid of that and brush it off and be able to move forward? Sometimes like a uh, negativity, there's a kernel of truth in it. And that's when it hurts is that because as humans, we hone into that 1% of truth and most of the time, like the vast majority of time when somebody leaves like a negative comment, I brush it off. I'm like, oh, look at you not caring about the content that I create when, again, I'm not trying to impress somebody who doesn't get what I do, nor has any bearing on supporting me or my business. So the fact that you are taking the time out of your negative and sad day to leave a comment, number one, is good for my engagement. Number two, it's just sad people trying to make other people sad and hurt people, hurt people. We've heard it a thousand times before. And listen, nobody who is before you or ahead of you will ever take the time to say something negative about you. The only people who are saying something negative about you are the people behind you because they're trying to hold you back into their level of state. 
stasis because when everybody's like them, they feel safe. So when somebody is stepping out and doing something different, it challenges their belief and their capacity, their intellect, their chutzpah, their wherewithal, their ganas. I'm not going to play that game. You want to sit here and try to hold me back? Sorry, baby, you're eating my dust. However, there are comments where somebody will say something and the tiny bit of truth hurts like a dagger to the soul. And there was a point in time where I would let that dagger and I would just stare at it. I would hold it. I would push it in deeper so that I felt a physical hurt from somebody reading that truth. And now, especially after having a daughter, but even before her, there were times where I would read the truth and I would say, I can't spend any valuable time pushing that dagger in deeper when what I need to do is take the dagger out and think, why does the dagger have power? And then talk to myself differently, change my behavior, apologize to who I need to apologize, try to make it right. Don't repeat the same mistake. Because if you heard somebody say something true and you changed, thank them. That's it. Ooh, dang girl. Okay. (laughs) I'm just, I mean, that's true. There's always, you know, there's sometimes truth. And oh, hi, Luna. Say hi. Hola. Hi. Hola, Jessica. Oh, she doesn't want to talk right now. She's so cute. <gasps> Look at that big bow. I know, big bow, because baby girl, everybody thinks that she's a boy. They're like, hey, there, little guy. And I'm like, there's a bow in her hair. <laughs> you know, what? my my youngest sister went like almost two years of her life were, with no hair. And now that's she has the most. Right now? Yeah. So. She, you know, now she has like this long, luscious Good. hair and everything. We'll so we'll pray that for her. Shoot. Yes, that'll happen. Um, what do you see for the future of what you want to do? Because you just said you're moving. Social Curator went from this box Membership. kind of format yeah. to now a tech com- company. Yes. Where do you see it going in the future? I see iterations of Social Curator. I see Social Curator as the brand. And I think that we're, my dream would be to add ancillary things to empower business owners to get sales on social media. I think that we have to retool what Social Curator is to ensure that when you go in, yes, it's inspiring, but it's not just inspiring. It's also inspiring you to action and save you time. Like we want more done for you solutions and we can build that on the back of tech. So you look at it, you're like, how much time do I have? Well, what could we do to facilitate expediting the caption writing? What we could do to expedite what it would take for you to show up differently in your business? And that's fine. That's one piece. We also think there's other ancillary pressure points for business owners. Like how do we get people back to buying the thing that you're selling? There's so many things that we could and should be building. And I see us adding, adding different products to an entire suite. So when somebody comes in, maybe they don't use social curator as it is right now. Like Maybe they don't need social media resources, but maybe they need this thing for their business. So that's part of like a much bigger vision. But I strongly think that 2022 is as much as it makes me like cringe. It's a, it's a year of retooling. It's a year of gutting the business out serving our users and specifically honoring the people who've been with us a very long time and give them something that will blow their socks off. And so if people are happy now, great. I'm honored and flattered, but prepare your heart because what's going to come next is going to be freaking mind-blowing. That's that's the goal. And how do you want, before I ask you like the very last thing, how do you want your daughter to see you as she grows up and see what you're doing? And how do you want her to be able to use what, how she sees you in her own life? I would love, and that's the goal. The goal is to expose her and keep her exposed to the front row seat of the business, not because it's a business, but to show her what it takes to face adversity um, when things don't go as planned, like just minutes before getting onto this podcast, got an email that was like, man, it was so hopeful. We totally thought we were going to do this thing with this other company. And we're like, 
pre-celebrating and then they decided that it wasn't the right time and you feel gutted, but like you can let those situations define you. And like, what decision did you make and how did you show up? I would love for my daughter to see that life is not guaranteed to be a walk in the park. Nobody said it was going to be easy. And like to have a mom who continues to show up and then who continues to show her how to show up, nothing would mean more to me so that whatever she pursues, I don't care if she wants to clean houses. I don't care if she wants to drive buses. I don't care if she wants to be president of the United States. Every single thing requires you to get up and have a strong sense of resilience. If I could show her that, I would think that that would be the best legacy. Absolutely. I want to make sure I'm saying all of your websites and socials because I know we're on limited time and I wanted like, I could sit here and talk to you forever. Um, Socialcurator.com. You're at Jasmine Star on all social media platforms. Correct. Am I missing another website or anything like that? JasmineStar.com? JasmineStar.com. There's two websites, JasmineStar.com and SocialCurator.com. They both lead to the same places. And on social media, I would love to connect. You know that I respond to DMs. So if there are listeners who got to know in a deeper, better way, like reach out, I would love to connect. And I will say she has almost a half a million followers on Instagram and she legit answers her own DMs. I like do. I can say people that often, from like people doubt it. And then I'm just like, fine. I was like, you're like no makeup. I'm like, it's me. <laughs> well, cause I remember I when I said, Oh, remember me? Um, you said you'd be my hundredth guest. And you're like, yeah, yeah I remember you yeah. talk to Christina. Yeah. Look, yeah. I, I'm a woman of my word. <laughs> I did say that. I did say that. See y'all here testifying. I like it. I like it. <laughs> I want to make sure I give you the opportunity to share anything that I have not asked because we covered a lot. I know we kind of bounced around, but I was just going by how I felt because we were just having a great conversation. So if there's anything else you wanted to add. You know, I always think about what I wish I would have known at different stages of my life. And while I don't ever want to go back and repeat it, and if somebody says, what would you do over again? I wouldn't do anything over again. I made the decisions I made and I've learned from them. But I think that if what I had wish I had known earlier was that regardless of the work I produce or the money in the bank or the people I know or the growth on any sort of metric driven social platform is I just wish I would have told myself that me in it and of itself is enough to do the thing I want to do. And I don't need metrics and I don't need money and I don't need validation because if I am okay with who I am and I really like doing what I do and there's a small group of people who really like what I do, what more do we want in life? Let us not tax our creativity. Let us not tax our desires by having somebody else define what we should be holding as success. So if anybody's listening and they want to do something and they're not quite sure it will be the next billion dollar idea or get a hundred thousand followers you're enough. Do it and find gratitude and sanctity and appreciation for what that process is. Well, I don't think we need, I think that's a great place to end it. Mm. So, I mean, there's nothing else you can say. Thank you so much. Thank you. Congratulations on episode 100. Thank you. Oh my gosh. It's so crazy. It's good. You guys go follow Jasmine. If you're not part of Social Curator and you still are like wishy-washy, even me, I mean, I'm not wishy-washy with social media, but it just sometimes sparks ideas that you didn't mm-hmm. realize you had mm-hmm. and just check it out. And until yeah. next time, mi gente. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Wine and Chisme podcast. For more information on today's guest, please see the show notes for links to websites and social media channels. You can check out all things Wine and Chisme on our website, thewineandchismepodcast.com. There, you will find the names of wines I drink each episode, as well as additional information on me, the podcast, and you can
can even apply to be a guest straight from there. You can also find us on social media at The Wine and Cheese on Instagram and at The Wine and Cheese Podcast on Facebook. Remember, if you want to hear more Wine and Cheese please subscribe, rate, and review. Five-star ratings are appreciated and those positive reviews are appreciated 